2003, Upper West Side of Manhattan. Elaine Gibson, who's kind of a socialite, well-to-do well woman, is doing her morning walk to the coffee shop to get coffee. And she's walking along the sidewalk past uh, the garbage is out because it's garbage day. She's mindful that the garbage truck is picking up garbage behind her as she's walking. And she walks past a, a garbage can, and beside the can is a painting. And she's like, I kind of like the looks of that. I like that painting. It looks nice. Should I pick up the painting? But she's a socialite from the Upper West Side of Manhattan. You don't actually do that, right? That's not something you do. So she's a little self-conscious, but she decides, you know, I like the painting. It looks good to me. She picks it up, takes it home. Before the trash people get it, she takes, picks it up, takes it home, goes to get her coffee. I'm using it for an illustration for obvious reason. It turns out that it's the stolen Rufino Tamayo Los Tres Persojones painting. He's a Mexican Impressionist. This, the, this painting was stolen 17 years earlier from a warehouse. Ends up auctioned a few years later at Sotheby's for over a million dollars. She picked it up out of the trash. Somebody should have told the original owner something like this. Don't you know what you have right there? Because surely if you knew what you had, you would not discard it. It may look like any other painting. I've seen it. To me, it looks like any other painting, maybe. It just looks like something a lot of people could do. Not me, but a lot of people. So it looked like that other, uh, any other painting to that owner. But if they'd considered who was the creator of it, who the artist was behind it, they would have seen that painting with very different eyes. Don't you know what you have right here? It's Rufino Tamayo. We're obviously changing the way we do worship a little bit here, and I thought it would be helpful after we got this long book of Luke behind us to take a few weeks just to step back and ask the question, what is the church? When we're thinking about changing our worship a little bit, what is the church? And we're going to address it part in part today and in part the next couple of weeks. But today, we're going to look at it from Hebrews chapter 12. And essentially, we're, we're saying, don't you know what you've got? Don't you know what you have? This group, I mean, you're kind of impressed. Some of you are kind of handsome and beautiful, but we look like any other group of people. And I'm not just talking about New City Church, but the church, the local church. What is the church? It looks like any other group of people, any other assembly. But the book of Hebrews chapter 12 comes in and says, don't you know what you have because of who made this? And what the reality is behind it and what the reflective reality is in it. New City, for instance, you're a little local expression of it. Don't you know what you have? Maybe you're not from part of New City. Maybe you're part of another church. Fine, don't you know what you have? Even if it looks like any other thing, the author of it, the creator of it, makes it different. And this is perhaps especially pointed for me because a couple weeks ago I caught up with an old friend, had lunch with him, hadn't talked to him for a couple years, and we were doing the inquiries of family and work. And, and I said, what's your home church nowadays? Because he doesn't live necessarily around here. And he's like, oh, you know, we're not really part of a church. But I'm still following Jesus. After all, what does following Jesus have to do with being part of a church? And he didn't ask it in a rebellious way. He didn't ask it in a hostile way. He just asked it in a matter-of-fact way. Like, of course everybody knows that. And so I want to address a couple questions today, I think from the Scripture, right? Why be part of a church, a local church? Second question is, can you be a follower of Jesus without being part of a local church? Now, the American in us, is a, of course, wants to rush to answer, of course, I can do whatever I want. We'll get there. Third question is like, what about just me and a couple friends having coffee? Isn't that church? What about me and my local family, right? Isn't that church? We'll address these things. Um, and again, I want to say at the beginning, I'm not talking about New City necessarily. 
I'm talking about the people of God and the design of God in this world. What's going on? We're looking at it from Hebrews 12, but immediately, before we even start, we're a little bit hamstrung by two things. One is our technology, and the second is our language. Here's what I mean. You have a Bible. You probably have a personal Bible in your possession right now or on your phone. You probably have a Bible in your home or a family Bible. You have your own Bible. We have to know how rare that is in the history of the church. That started a few hundred years ago. That started in the 16th century. For most of God, the history of God's people, from the call of Abraham on, people didn't have their own Bibles. It took the invention of the printing press. I'm very thankful for it, but it took the invention of the printing press. And even at that, in the 16th century, you could get your own Bible for the low cost of about two and a half weeks' wage. So think about that. What's your weekly, you know, what do you make each week? Multiply by two and a half. That's a lot, but you could spend that and get your own Bible if you were inclined. Right? So most people didn't have their own Bibles. What we need to know is books like Hebrews or 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, all the, the, the letters to the churches were just that. They were letters to churches. We can read Hebrews for ourselves, but in most of history, what would happen is the book of Hebrews would be read out loud in a worship gathering and then passed on to the next church down the road or, or copied a few times and passed on and spread out. We didn't get to read these, so when... All of the letters are to gather groups of people. The second problem is our language and the word you, Y-O-U. In English, the word you, singular, like John McCowan, you, and you, you read it, it's the exact same thing, unless you're from the South, right? Y'all, Ewans, whatever. Um, it's actually, I don't know if it's better English, but it's more accurate. Y'all, for you, plural. Why am I going into this? When you see... Y'all, C words, or you individually. See, it's so hard. Uh, the word you in the New Testament, in the letters, it's almost always plural. It's almost always plural. I don't mean there's no individual application. Just like you have to understand, y'all have to understand that it's usually y'all, okay? I'm going to stop doing that. It seems so weird to a guy from northern Illinois. But it's, uh, it's, it's, it's for us. I can't. It's just so strange. But we read that, and we read the yous in here, and we default because just how, where we are in space and time to reading it as a personal individual application first. And I just need you to know that's not the case. There is individual application. It's a secondary application. The corporate is the initial application. Just trying to get back into the world of the Bible. So we're looking at Hebrews chapter 12 here. One of, the, some, one of the themes in Hebrews is just encouragement. This is a group, Hebrews are Jews, right? Hebrew Christians dispersed around the Roman Empire. And they're suffering some light persecution. They hadn't resisted to the point of being killed for their faith yet. But there's probably exclusion from, the, from economic circles, exclusion from social circles. Uh, and they felt their minority status as both Jews and then Jewish Christians who had been exiled from the Jewish community, they felt it acutely. And so part of the encouragement is just hang on, hold on. So it begins this way. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, 
from his father Isaac. He was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought, sought it with tears. So that last part is just the story of Esau. He despised his firstborn status, and it caused a lot of havoc. But this is just general encouragement. Hang in there. Pursue the Lord. Uh, pursue peace with each other. Pursue a life of integrity before God. That's all that, right? So we're not going to talk about any of that. And I just want to say that this passage, we're just looking at one little piece of it. It's like walking through all, past all these great trailheads that you, don't want, you want to go down, but you're not going to go down. So we're just going to look at one of them. So there's a lot of stuff here we're skipping over. The motivation for this encouragement is essentially because don't you know what you have? You don't see it right now, but I want to show you what you have, says the writer to Hebrews. Verse 18. Uh, For, I'll, I'll read this, it'll sound weird, and then I'll explain it, and hopefully it will sound less weird. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of whose words may the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. Now, what is this? These are Jewish Christians. They know their own uh, story. They know the story of the Exodus, where God led the people of Israel out of Egypt, out of slavery, into the wilderness, and uh, he's going to give them a gift of his law. The law was a gift because these people have been enslaved for years. They were treated inhumanely. He's saying, here's how you treat each other humanely. And this is humanely and it's in line with my character. And also as Mike preached last week so ably, it's the law was preparing them in concept for a Messiah who was to come. So it was a gift to them, this law. But the giving of the law was a traumatic event for the Israelites. God called them out of slavery and you can... Go back and read it in Exodus 19 and repeat it in Deuteronomy 4 and 9. God shows up and they're at Mount Sinai. That's the mountain it's talking about there. And God shows up in a pillar of smoke and fire and it's uh, thousands and thousands of angels are blowing a trumpet, splitting their eardrums like it's so loud and God speaks and the mountains shake and the people are afraid and they freak out and the in that moment that mountain is so holy that even if an animal touches it it's to be killed that's how separate and and uh, holy this this situation is and the people are terribly afraid and so they say to Moses Moses you go talk to God for us because it's kind of freaking us out a little bit we're afraid of this look at verse 21 indeed it was so terrifying so terrifying was the sight that Moses said yeah actually also I tremble with fear right but but Moses, you be the mediator for it, for us, and so Moses does that. But it was this terrifying situation, showing the holiness and the magnificence of God, and yet, this same God calls the Israelites near, and he makes a way for them in fellowship and in covenant with him. So it's this terrifying reality, and yet there's mercy there, and yet, he's like, you haven't come to this. Even though it was so amazing, it was, in some way, temporary. If you see in verse 18, you have not come to what might be touched. This will be, get picked up later in the passage. But what he's saying there is, because this mountain could be touched, it was a physical thing, it could tremble and be shaken, and one day it will be replaced by something that cannot be shaken. 
And by the way, that's what you're part of, he goes on to say. Verse 22. So verse 18, you have not come to what might be touched, therefore shaken, verse 22. But you have come. So I know that's only three words, but stop. (laughs) Y'all, but you all together have come. Not will come someday. Not uh, might come to this someday. Not remember back when you were there. It's a present reality to this little church who's reading this huddled away in an underground church somewhere in the Roman colonies. You little church, you seem weak. You seem needy. Here's what you know. You need to know. You have come to something that cannot be shaken. You church gathered right here, right now in this worship gathering. You need to know. You have come to something that cannot be shaken. Because we can't see it, we tend to treat it as not real. We'll see how the Bible asks us to turn that upside down here in a second. But I want to say it's a present reality. You have come to something. I have come to something. We have come to something. What have we come to? Verse 22 continues. To Mount Zion and the city of the living God. One of the themes of Hebrews is there's all these earthly realities that shadow heavenly realities. And think of what a shadow is for a second. If I, the light's kind of casting up here, a shadow of my hand on my paper. So the shadow is a real reflection of something, but it's not as real as the thing it's reflecting. Right? That makes sense. It's really a reflection of my hand. But the, if you look at the shadow, the vi- it's not nearly the vibrancy and the clarity and the heft and the reality that my hand is, but it's a real thing. It's a real reflection. But it can evaporate. It's gone, right? Though the real thing doesn't evaporate. The original hearers, when they maybe first started hearing this, would say, you've come to Mount Zion, which is the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, and to the city of the living God, that would be Jerusalem. And they, uh, they think, oh, we're talking about that. And God's like, no, not that. That's the shadow. You've come to the real thing, the heavenly Jerusalem. You've come to the thing that's actually more solid, that's as solid and real and living as the resurrected Jesus himself. We just read it in our confession, who is raised from the dead bodily, ascends into heaven. And if you've been here for a while, you know, we don't talk about heaven. It's like somewhere out there. It is simply a different dimension, if you will. That's a better way to think about it. I'm not saying that's what the scripture says, but it's better to think as a dimensional reality. That heaven is a present reality right now, dimensionally different than us. I think that's a much more faithful way to talk about it as the scripture does. You have come to this, that's a real reality, people of God. You are part of something that is more real than you and me. This, we might say, I think we can say, we must say, shadows something more vibrant. The story's actually better, bigger, more solid, and more grand than we can imagine. Right? It's like the shadow's not bad. I'm thankful for the shadow. It represents something real, but it's not got nearly the vibrancy as the real thing. You have come to the, to the heavenly city and to innumerable angels in festal gathering. What does that mean? I don't know. Angels in party clothes, basically. They're ready to party. There was 
thousands and thousands and thousands of angels at Mount Sinai blowing a trumpet. It was terrifying. These angels are ready to party. They're in festal gathering. 1 Peter 1 says angels long to look into the salvation that God gives to people. They just can't believe it because they know us. Like, can you believe the Lord gives salvation to people like Roger? They're stunned by it. They're ready. They're celebrating with that reality, these angels, innumerable angels. That's not all. And here's really the money verse for us, verse 23. Into the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. Now, what does this mean? There's a more real reality than even we can grasp with our five senses. And he says it's the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. Assembly. Some of your translations might have a footnote and simply say the word church. The church of the firstborn. It's the Greek word ekklesia. It's how the, the, Septuagint, the Greek translations they would have used translated the old uh, Hebrew word assembly or gathering. It's the gathered together. It's the, it's the people defined and especially the people as they're gathered to present themselves in worship to God. You have come to this reality, this assembly. There's a, the real reality of which we're a shadow is an assembly, a group of people. Not just of current believers in Christ. We'll get to that in a second. But it's a specific assembly and the church of the firstborn. What does that mean? So who is the firstborn, right? Don't answer out loud unless you're going to say Jesus. That's the only right answer, right? Jesus is the firstborn. He's talked about in Hebrews 1, not because he was born, but because it's a, in Hebrew mindset, the firstborn was a status, the position of premier status. The firstborn son received all the inheritance, so he's like, Jesus is the firstborn. And this is the assembly of the firstborn. But interestingly enough, if you dig into this, that word firstborn is actually a plural word. What does this mean? Well, we know from our theology that through faith in Christ, we receive union with Jesus. And if you individually have faith in Jesus Christ, you are united to him, and his inheritance is your inheritance. Not because you're great, but because he died in your place and removed your sins. And now offers you his life, and his future is your future. His future is our future if we're in him. That's what it means that we, that we are the church, the gathering of the firstborn. And this invites our imagination to begin to shape the way we see each other. Because in spite of me, and my past, and my present, and what I will do tomorrow, and all the sin that clings to me. Some of you know it well. Some of you know me really well. Know it well, right? You are looking at a firstborn son of the high king of heaven in spite of myself. And because of the original firstborn son. I'm looking at the same thing. So this begins to shape us. And I think, imagine if we could treat each other with the honor that firstborn sons deserve. Imagine if we treat each other with the honor that we would like to give to Jesus. That's why Romans 12.10 says, love one, anotherly, whether, love one another with brotherly affection and outdo one another in showing honor to each other. Now, listen, we fail at this totally. 
We, the church as it exists now, the earthly expression of the heavenly reality, is made up of people who are presently imperfect. <laughs> Not permanently imperfect, by God's grace, but presently imperfect. And we, we, we fail tremendously in not showing honor to each other. And this passage just invites us to see what is actually more real than us. That we are part of an assembly where we, because of the work of Jesus on our behalf, are united to him. And I should treat each of you as those who have such honor as, as if you were Jesus yourself and you return that favor. To the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. That's just, um, that enrollment, that's the membership roles, by the way. That's a book in heaven, the membership roles of heaven. So part of the reason we have membership in the local church is because God does. So some of, I know, some people don't like the idea of membership. Uh, Right here, you can take it up with the author, not me. Uh, it's It's a heavenly reality of which we're a shadow. So we want to tell the truth about the heavenly reality, right? Um, and uh, yeah, so in, in this earthly expression, as I said, we are presently imperfect people, therefore we have the capacity to sin against each other. And you look in the wider world, I know, like, man, churches and pastors sometimes do crazy stuff they shouldn't do. And sometimes they build big churches and do crazy public things to get a lot of press and a lot of negative press. And sometimes they have little tiny churches and they do crazy things nobody cares about. But it, it ought not be. Churches, the, the local church can be a mess. Why? We have people that are presently imperfect for whom Jesus died. Jesus said, you're a mess. I'm coming for you because you, you have sin and I want to deal with it your whole life. We can't there be, therefore be surprised when we have people who have sin that has to be dealt with for their whole life and have problems in the churches, right? It's a real reality. So if you've been hurt by churches, I'm sorry about that. Um, if you've done hurting, please repent. Um, but look at this next thing. You have come to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Now, God is the judge of all. Is that good news or bad news for the people of God? Answer, it's great news for the people of God that God is the judge of all. Why? Because in Christ, here's the judgment, justified. In Christ, God, the judge of all, says, you, I count you as righteous in Christ forever. The righteousness of Jesus applied to you. Come into my family. Oh, I know you're not perfect yet. We're working on that. But your record, I attribute Jesus' righteousness to you. My judgment is justified. And so I'm not looking at only firstborn sons that deserve full honor, but those whom Christ, God himself, says justified because of Jesus Christ. And it almost dares us to live into that. What if we treat each other that way? And to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. That's the people that have died before, right? It's a temporary state for them because they don't have their resurrected bodies yet. But early on in, in this chapter, it's like this picture of their lives and maybe even them cheering for you. Cheering you on. I had the privilege yesterday of going to a CrossFit competition. You know what CrossFit is? It's ridiculous. I was a spectator, not a participant. And it's because we had three uh, participants in our church. Uh, Taylor was a participant. Tim Shackton was a participant. 
And Stephen Kirk, who was in the first service, was a participant. So people who were not fit were watching people who were fit work out. That's how it works. That's, that's CrossFit, you know, competitions. Um, and one of the competitions was they were to do as many reps of bench press as they could in one minute and then switch to the next person. So the total cumulative reps and pounds, I guess, is how they won that. So, so you know, it, that doesn't seem like a lot. Uh, two for a minute until you load the bar up at 225 pounds like Taylor did and did it like 26 times, 24, 29, 29. So I lost count. It was boring. So I couldn't even count. Um, but you couldn't really see them do it from the, from the stands because their teammates, there was a group, uh, teams of 10, I guess, the other nine would surround them as they're benching. And you couldn't see them because the nine were surrounding them saying, go, 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 go. And they do it and they go, 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 go. And then when they're done, they kind of roll off the bench because they can't even stand up. They're so wiped out. And Stephen's father was there and we were watching together. He's like, hey, Roger, do you think you'd be a better preacher if people say, go, go, go? I don't know. That's kind of a weird thing, I guess. But um, here's the picture that we get. There are thousands, millions perhaps billions of those who have gone before, whose lives and faithfulness and walk with Christ, even when it's difficult, are saying to you, go, go. Do you know what you have? Do you know what the real is of which you're a shadow? Go. Do you know where you're going? Go. Do you know what it costs? Go, go, go. We've come to the, to the, the, the spirits of the righteous made perfect. But we, we fail right now. What do we do in the church when we fail each other? Good news, we've also come to, verse 24, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and the sprinkled blood of, uh, that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. We have a present mediator who mediates grace to us right now over and over and over again and empowers us to come in confession and receive forgiveness and act in a forgiving posture to one another as we're moving on together. And what is this whole deal with the blood of Abel? If you remember back in the early pages of Genesis, Cain kills his brother Abel, and the Scripture says the blood of Abel calls out for justice against the one who's, who's responsible for this death. What does it mean that Jesus' blood speaks a better word? The blood of Jesus calls out for Forgiveness for those who are responsible for his death. That's a better word than judgment. Right? Why? Because we have a mediator of a new covenant. That's what you have in the church. That's all. Just everything. We're the earthly expression of the heavenly reality. Not just new city. Whatever church you're part of. So I'm going to come back to my friend's question. What's, why be part of a church? Well, it is the earthly expression of the heavenly reality. That's why. Now, as a shadow, it's imperfect. Have you noticed? Cool. But we have a mediator of a new covenant who gives grace to us. Question number two. Can I be a follower of Jesus and not be part of a church? Okay. Well, technically, sure. Can you be married and never live with your spouse? I guess technically, sure. Can I just say that's far short of what's intended? Can you be 
A follower of Jesus and not be part of a local church. Okay, here we go. Some of you, I don't know. Some of you, I may never talk to it after this. Some of you online here watching the live stream, you'll click off. That's fine. Um, not a faithful one. You cannot be an obedient follower of Jesus and not be part of a local church. Look, I didn't write this. Hebrews 10. Let's put in your insert. Now, I'm going to, these are like reasons, right? But this isn't, I, this isn't sufficient reason. The reason we be part of a local church is, do you see what you got? It's so awesome. And I'm just going to give you law now, not because it has the power to motivate. I'm just trying to tell you where the, what the frame is, right? Verse, uh, Hebrews 10, 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good deeds, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now somebody will quickly say, but how about that? Doesn't that just mean meeting for, at Starbucks with someone? No, but just in case you're not clear on that, now, I want you to meet at Starbucks with people, right? That's awesome. Encourage one another. This is written to a church in a worship gathering. But, Hebrews 13, again, uh, this is the scripture, not Roger. Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led astray away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace. Then on down in verse 17. Still in the context of teaching, right? Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Now we can, we can debate what obey and submit to leaders means, and I, trust me, I do not want to have that conversation right now, um, but I want you to tell you, I too am a man under authority, we're presbyter, I don't, you know, people have oversight over the lives of your pastors and elders, but you, you can't obey and submit to leaders and remember leaders if you don't have them. You can't if it's your, your own leader. We're just not made, we're made for community and we're made for authority. We all are made for authority. All of us, even leaders, like made for authority. That is the design plan. This is, that's why I mean. It's like it's really hard to be a faithful follower of Jesus if you're ignoring the design God made and tells us right here. Well, what about just like me and some friends, you know, having a Bible study? Isn't that, isn't that sufficient? Maybe one smarter than everybody else. We'll call them the, that person the leader. Okay. Um, I want, to have, want you to have Bible studies with smart people, right? Um, 1 Peter 5. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not dom domineering over, there, over your charge, so on and so forth. Here's the, what I, what I want to point out. You have elders and you have a flock. That's what's necessary. Right? In order to obey the scripture, the people of God have to be gathered into some sort of flock. The way I answered my friend, and I didn't have the, all this scripture in mind, is like I said, friend, do you know what the Bible calls a Christian who is not part of a local church? 
Neither do I. There is no example of that. It's a foreign concept. I don't know. Why? Because the design pattern is you guys united. We're going to call it spiritual. We want to call it concretely more real than, than us shadow life to the heavenly assembly of which the church is the earthly expression. Flawed though it is right now. Okay? Um, so that, that's all the church is. Everything. And a bunch of other broken things getting thrown in. Right? Um, that we're just trying to work out with flawed leaders and flawed followers and flawed, yeah, just lots of stuff. But we get Jesus. Now, there's a warning here, verse 25, um, moving toward the end here. That was, the, that was the trail we went down. Everything else is a trailhead I'm going to point out, I just promise. Um, there are these warnings in Hebrews. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, that's Mount Sinai, much less will we escape when we reject him who warns from heaven. There's these warnings to the church in Hebrews. Why? Because it's possible to neglect the voice of God, even for people in the church. It is possible to, to grow up in the church and not respond to the gospel. Just being part of the church means doesn't mean anything if you're not responding to the voice of the gospel. Lots of people come to church because I like the music and I like the preaching and occasionally I like the coffee or whatever. I like the fellowship events. Being present does not necessarily mean that we're responding to the voice of God speaking in the gospel. So there's a warning. Make sure you don't neglect it. Right? But he, check out this encouragement here. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. This is the speaking voice of God, little church of the Hebrew Christians afraid and meeting in somebody's you know, uh, side room in the Roman Empire. The, the scriptures being read is the voice of God speaking to you right now. When I read these words, it's the voice of God speaking to you right now. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. That's my voice. That's God's word that's saying that presently right now. That's what happens in the gathered assembly. Verse 26, at that time his, ver his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase yet once more indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is the things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. If you run out to the end of the book, Revelation 21, we did it at the very beginning of our service, you see a picture of the heavenly city, the new Jerusalem, us not flying off to it, but it concretely coming down to this earth, and it touches down, and things are renewed. The things that, become, that are shakable, that can be touched, are shaken, and they're transmorphed in some way, we're not sure how that works, but the heavenly city is what dominates, and it makes all things new and real and concrete, and that which we're already part of now becomes concretely the way in this uh, shakable world that we live in. We're, but we're already there in one real way. Therefore, here's the... Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Not because your faith is so strong. Not because you've got it all together, though some of you do. But because one stands in heaven and holds us who cannot be shaken and is committed to delivering that reality to us, a reality in which we already share. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. So what is the gathered worship like? 
Well, you got angels in party clothes. They're happy. You got a lot of Thanksgiving. Like, I can't believe it. I get all this. I got a mediator of new covenant, firstborn privileges. So joy, Thanksgiving, reverence, and awe, like all combined together, right? That's what we're kind of, kind of going for, right? Sometimes in spite of ourselves. And look how this ends, verse 29. For our God is a kindly, soft, vanilla grandfather. Amen. No. For our God is, present tense, a consuming fire. Sometimes we say we get to be part of the true story of the whole world. We are part, we're trying to, we're not because we're so smart, because God has rescued us into this story, and we're living all these other storylines across, and we're trying to live this true story of the whole world in which every other story will eventually bow. Think about what a consuming fire is. You have to deal with it. It deals with everything. This is God saying, this is the, this is the way it is. Because of my character. I have made you part of something that's more concrete, concrete than you can realize, more real than what seems real to you, and it's coming full. Don't you realize what you have? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for, <laughs> well, I thank you for the word that we did get to explore, and I'm, there's so much more. Let us see with fresh eyes what you have done for your people as we come to the table. In Jesus' name, amen.